So Peter, right? Let's jump back in um, where we've been. I know we've had we had a week off, so I just want to recap a couple things. We, we the first few weeks we were laying a foundation, right? Peter is is saying, hey, this is this. There's eternity at stake, right? This what we celebrate is the salvation of our souls and what that means for this life, of course. And yet this life is just a small fraction of time of our existence. It impacts eternity, and so that's that's a big deal. Your sins have been forgiven. And then moving on from there, he's saying, because that's true, because of the reality of eternity and what God has accomplished for us through Christ, it's time to grow up a little bit. It's time to get serious with your faith. The coasting cannot happen because, yes, eternity is at stake, and yet we also want the gospel to infiltrate every area of our lives, our communities, our families, our schools, our businesses, right, government, all of those things. And, and our role in that has changed drastically when we step into that relationship with Christ. We are set apart. We're given a new calling and a new identity. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a priest called to stand in the gap on behalf of those who are still trying to figure out this Jesus thing, right? You are a living stone who's supposed to live like the cornerstone Jesus and point others back to him as the example that we've been given. And because of this new identity, because of this new calling, there's a natural tension with the world because they don't have the Holy Spirit. The truth has not been revealed to them, right? They have not been called out of that yet. And so that tension is there, and that tension must be navigated with some of those new realities in mind. And what we talked about a couple weeks ago is as these things are happening, as we're trying to figure out how to live in the world, how to handle tension with government, how to handle tension with the way the world does social justice and, and some of the, the injustices that are out there, some of the, the tension that we see in people living in the worst of circumstances, the tension that we see in the way the world does marriage, the way the world interacts with each other. We've been called to be different, and yet we do that so that they may see and believe. And I challenge you guys to be the most diligent, shine the light the brightest in the areas where your world is the darkest. And there's lots of different personal ramifications. And so as we jump back in today, 1 Peter 3, um, it's a bit of a continuation of where we left off. Um, because Peter's been talking about, hey, here's, here's some examples of how you navigate this tension, right? If you come up against a government or, or an authority figure that you don't necessarily uh, agree with, where maybe there's immorality in their leadership, how do you respect them, right? He calls us to respect them even in the midst of that, that to, to to navigate the way the world does some of these different things. And so Peter continues on, in a, and it's going to take a little bit of a different turn, uh, and I'll explain that in a second. So 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, to kick things off. He says, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he's saying, here's, now that I've challenged you on some of these really practical areas of life, now here's how I want you to treat one another, right? Be like-minded, unified in truth and in mission. Be sympathetic, be compassionate, uh, live with humility. Repay insults with blessings. That's a tough one. Keep your mouth pure. Speak with honesty. Build others up instead of tear down. But in, in the midst of this, you might want to say, okay, wait now. You said 
He's talking about how to live in the midst of a fallen world, but then he says, love one another. And usually in the New Testament scriptures, when it says one another, it's talking about those within the body of Christ. And so it seems a little bit out of place. But what he's saying is, this is a call to do all of these things within the body because it, number one, establishes a chance for us to practice and it lays a healthy foundation for how we're going to live outside of this place in an unfriendly world. Basically saying, if we can do it in here, we can do it out there. If we can do it in here, we can help each other do it out there. Because you guys know there's passionate people here. There's defenders of the word in here. There's differences of opinion in here. There's different backgrounds and ideas of what truths should be emphasized in here. We all might, or many of us might claim to love Jesus in here, but that doesn't mean it's easy to be loving and like-minded and sympathetic and humble in here. And so what we do in here sets the tone for what happens out there, and it provides a solid foundation to work from and lean from in difficult moments. Um, some of you guys might know, um, uh, during the winter I ref high school basketball games. Extremely joyful and pleasing job uh, on, on Friday nights. Uh, had an interesting one this past Friday night, but we won't go there. Um, and I, honestly, I always wonder, like, is this coach going to walk in on a Sunday morning and be like, no, right? Like, it would be quite the moment. But there's, uh, in the midst of all the other things that, that go with being an official, um, there's a major difference between working a game with confidence in who I am and who we are as a crew and working a game from a place of insecurity. And both of them happen from time to time. So on the insecure side, you find yourself thinking, are they right? Did I blow that call? Did I ride the bus with the other team? I'm, I don't even, now I'm, I'm second-guessing myself, right? Maybe, maybe I did, right? Do, do I owe them a makeup call? Do I need to make extra calls to make up for my weak partner who I don't necessarily trust? Should I be ashamed of myself, as some people often tell me in the midst of a game, right? Like, and some, some of you are in here, right? Like, that's some of you. Um, uh, Christy Onnens, our, our kids director, their, uh, their daughter plays college ball down at Spring Arbor, and she's telling me about different games. I'm like, Christy, you're yelling at someone's Justin. Like, that's somebody's Justin. I'm like, she's like, I know, I always think about you, but I can't stop myself, right? So we, so we all get there, and yet, but, but there's those moments... There are those games where you're not sure of yourself and you're not real confident in the other guys that you're working with and you're just kind of working from a place of insecurity. You're not sure. You're second-guessing everything. But then there's those games where there's confidence, right? And, and you get the same comments from the crowd, the same comments from coaches, but you kind of answer it with almost like, all right, whatever, dude. A little, little bit of an eye roll. Um, you're secure in the moment. You're unfazed. You're trusting your partners. And there's, there's really kind of a surreal sense of peace in the midst of the chaos. Now, in both cases, it all kind of creeps into your head, but its impact on you is completely dependent on where you stand in that moment, where you stand on what you've practiced, what you've done repeatedly, what's been ingrained into your mind, where you stand in relation to the other guys in the crew. And so we, as a part of the body of Christ, we express love and sympathy and peace and compassion here within the family in order to set the tone for love and sympathy and compassion and humility outside of the family. And with that, we get a different outlook and we get to experience the trouble that comes out of a different kind of a heart, a different kind of a foundation through which those things are experienced. So in the midst of that, it affects it. Are you going to experience that trouble and question everything and walk through it with insecurity and fear? Or are you going to have, give it a little bit of a holy eye roll? 
say, we got this, right? And pursue those things and walk through them with confidence. What happens in here with one another gives us a chance to practice and set the tone for how we're going to interact with people outside of here, whether that's authority figures or uh, uh, injustices we see at work or in the community or within our marriages or within our friend groups. All of those different things apply that Peter hit uh, earlier on in chapter 3. So let's keep going uh, to verse 13. These things are all going to kind of start to build on each other here. So verse 13, he says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it's better if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So kind of a strange insinuation that he makes here, right? If, if you live this way, remember, compassion, humility, uh, others first, all of these different things. If you live this way, you're going to experience some pushback, maybe a lot of pushback. And you go, really? Why would that be? I'm showing respect for authority. I'm showing respect even for those who lead with a lack of integrity and show a lack of justice. I'm showing modesty and submission. I'm living with love and sacrifice within my marriage. I'm being sympathetic to all. I'm being compassionate to all. I'm being humble in my interactions with everyone. I'm showing respect for all, just like Peter challenged me to do. And Peter's going, you might suffer for doing good. And you say, why? Because people don't like respect and humility? No. Because people don't like compassion? No. Because people don't like gentleness? No. Because people don't like humility? No. It's because, number one, living that way exposes those who don't live that way. And number two, because with that respect, with that humility, with that compassion comes a steady dose of truth that's attached to it. Because all of a sudden you're in a situation where you can say, this is why I'm living this way. This is my true motivation. The foundation of this way of life for me is my love for Jesus and my belief in Jesus. And he is the only way and the only truth and the only life. And so all of a sudden the good gets punished, not because the good is offensive, but because the why is offensive. The reason for your good is offensive. That's what gets punished. That's what gets mocked. So in the midst of doing good, be ready with your why. And present your why, just like everything else Peter has said, present your why with respect and humility. And why do we do it that way? Because if you speak for Christ any other way, what will they remember? They're going to remember the delivery. But if you do it his way, all they can walk away from, all they can reject is him and the truth of him. All they can reject is your why. And we're remembering in the midst of all of this, right? All of this is to provide opportunities for you to walk in the fullness of Christ and for others to come to know him through your life and testimony. And as an interesting note, as you think about some of the things that Peter continues to repeat through each of these chapters and each of these weeks, gentleness and respect over and over, humility over and over. And this echoes the Sermon on the Mount, which Peter was obviously there for with Jesus, with, with the Beatitudes, were to be 
peacemakers. We're to be meek. We're to be merciful. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Are you gentle? Are you respectful? Are you humble? And you have to understand, in our culture, in even Christian culture throughout the decades, those things have been viewed as weakness. But who's stronger than the one who faces trouble with quiet strength and humility and respect? Jesus went to the cross with not more than a dozen words on his path to Golgotha. It's not weakness. It's his way. Let's continue on into verse 19. I'm going to read this. There's a couple rabbit trails that will come out of this and that will lead us to our main idea this morning. 1 Peter 3.19 After being made alive, he, Jesus, Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So, a couple of rabbit trails. First one, baptism. Right? Got, got to clear this up. Peter is not saying that it's water baptism that saves you. He reiterates a couple of verses later in verse 21 that it's through Jesus that we are saved. And taking full counsel of Scripture, right? Just like everything else, we're not going to grab one verse and build an entire theology around it. We've got to look at everything that God gives us throughout Scripture. Uh, taking that full counsel of Scripture becomes clear that salvation is by faith in Jesus alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And so baptism is a symbol of the cleansing and the salvation that we experience in Christ. He mentions Noah in his family, right? The ark did not save Noah. The water did not save Noah. God did. And this is why the Old Testament stories and all that we get from that is so vital and foundational for us. It lays the foundation of our faith and it provides insight into what God did, what God is doing, and what God intends to do. And so we take all those things together. Peter is not saying that being baptized in water is what saves you. It's a symbol of what God has done through the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ alone. Second rabbit trail says Jesus went and after his death went and proclaimed to the imprisoned spirits. That's a silly one. Could be a couple different things. Nobody knows for sure, okay? First option uh, is that Jesus was going to get the faithful who died before his death and resurrection. Um, the argument is that there were men and women of faith, and since Jesus hadn't died yet and paid the penalty for sin through his death, um, that they weren't able to go all the way to heaven yet and that there was some place before heaven um, for those who believed God. Remember, it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So those who lived lives of faith before Jesus showed up, um, that they were held in a place just short of heaven and then Jesus went to take them with him to heaven after his death and sacrifice. But it, it talks about, he was proclaiming to the spirits who were disobedient in the times of Noah doesn't seem to line up um, so there's, there's kind of pros and cons to each of these. Second uh, thing that has been uh, presented is that Jesus was proclaiming truth to all the people who had died before his sacrifice on the cross. And so basically giving them a chance to hear the gospel from him. And if they respond, 
could then go with him to paradise. That one feels good. Um, but there's no evidence anywhere in Scripture that people are given a second chance after death. And so that one uh, do- doesn't seem to line up for me. Third one, I'm not sure. This is the one I kind of like the most because I, I kind of like to picture a, a cocky Jesus every once in a while. Um, some have guessed that maybe Jesus was simply going to do some righteous gloating to the evil spirits uh, in the spiritual realm. Maybe demons, maybe sinners, those who had rejected him completely before, life, before their death in generations gone by. Like I said, I kind of like this one, but I'm not sure. All right, every, everything that's been thrown out has, yeah, I can see that being true, but then this is why it might not be true. And so it's not real clear, just kind of a fun rabbit trail. Google it, YouTube it. There's some fun stuff out there on all of these. Um, just kind of one of those things that will never be settled on, but it's a fun debate from time to time. Most important overall theme, right? Because all of these kind of work together and build towards, when, when I picture what Jesus is doing there, the, the biggest theme is this. Jesus won. He won, right? He was maybe dead physically for a couple days, and yet he was fully alive and fully capable and fully powerful in the spirit, even in that time. And so the call to live is to live like we've already won. Go read Isaiah 8. Uh, Peter quotes it here in 1 Peter 3. Uh, Isaiah 8 is basically Jesus achieving victory, declaring victory over the source of, of evil, the source of our persecution, the source of our struggles, the source of any mocking, the source of any tension that we experience with the world around us. Now, you still face daily struggle, but the victory has already been won against the source of that struggle. And so victory is secure and your reward is secure. I want you to picture it like the movie Independence Day. Okay, if you haven't got, some of you guys are younger. If you haven't gone back, it's a fun movie, right? Other than the fact that the entire world gets nuked, it's a fun movie. <laughs> Um, and yet, as they get to the end, the way they solve this alien problem is there, there's dozens of smaller alien ships all over the world kind of doing their thing, right? At major cities and landmarks and things like that, and one mothership up in space. They decide that the best thing they can do is infect the mothership with a virus to affect the smaller ones, and then they ultimately blow up the mothership. Here's the thing. They succeed in that. They plant the virus, and they destroy the mothership. But the battle continues down on earth. There's still fighting to be done with some of the smaller ships to figure out how do we take these things down? How do we address this problem and this tension and this conflict in Moscow, over Washington, D.C., over Houston, wherever these different ships are? The fighting continued, but the ultimate victory was assured because the source of the evil had already been destroyed. Go back to Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve sin and and God is kind of prophesying how this is going to play out. This is your consequence and this is your consequence. Okay, snake, here's your consequence. You're going to be able to nip at his heel. It's prophesying Jesus and what he would accomplish. You're going to get his heel, but he's going to crush your head. When Jesus won, that's exactly what he did. It didn't eliminate our daily struggle and and the tension that we have to navigate as believers, as aliens on this planet, and yet we have a new promise. Revelation 1, 17 and 18, Jesus again declaring his victory. This is John now. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, and then he placed his right hand on me. And Jesus says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. You have been made different. You've been given a different 
calling and you've been called to live different because you've already won. And so as you face some of the tension, you can live differently knowing that the end is secure. A couple practical things as we wrap up this morning. And these are going to come, there's a, a similar passage in 1 Peter 4, so some of this is going to come out of that. Um, but if we go back to 1 Peter 3, 9, he says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Don't match the tension that's coming at you. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called. And if we go to 1 Peter 4, 12, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on, on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So the first thing is recognize that this tension that we experience, some of these struggles that we experience, it's to this you were called. Settle that fact in your mind right now. This is what you committed to when you trusted Christ. You committed to his way, you committed to his people, to his footsteps, and all of that can and does include suffering for doing what's right. All of that can and does include battling to keep from getting sucked in and enslaved by the sin around you. And all of that can and does include tests of faith that sometimes comes with following Jesus. The peace that we have experienced in this country for a number of decades is not the norm. It is not the expected or typical experience of a Christ follower in this world for the last 2,000 years. It's not normal. That's not what you were called to. You were called to the struggle. You were called to step into the tension and face those things, knowing that victory is already won. The activities and the struggles that you are described here in 1 Peter, it's to this you were called. And so if and when those things happen, the second thing I would say is this. If those things happen, the things that you've been called to experience happen, rejoice. 1 Peter 4, 13 through 16. He says, But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or as a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. I love the way the um, writer of this commentary kind of describes it, this section of verses. He says this, Presumably, the early Christians were not generally surprised by opposition to the gospel. But there's been a turn of events among Peter's audience that may have caught them off guard or shocked them. They were encountering a painful trial. Instead of being shocked by these events and turning inward to question and doubt, Peter's readers are to rejoice. Their lives will be tied into the patterns of Jesus, which should shape their fundamental attitude as they encounter persecution. Though they may now be somewhat surprised at the intensity of the heat they have stirred up by following Jesus, that very heat is an opportunity to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Peter sees the sufferings of ordinary believers as a special bond with their Lord. But this attitude is only a preparation. Being able to rejoice now is in the midst of suffering prepares one for being overjoyed when his glory is revealed. What seems presently unjust and presently difficult to face can be turned into a celebration of joy when one understands that Jesus endured the same. 
Guys, some of us turn into Karens anytime there's too much pulp in our Jesus juice. Somebody tweet that. I thought of that all by myself. I thought that was a really good line. We've been called to something different. Not simply to tolerate our faith. Not simply to accept our fate. But to celebrate the honor of the struggle that we've been called to. Rejoice when it happens. And finally this. I want to challenge you to recommit. 1 Peter 4.19 So then... Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Are you all in on this? Are you living with the quiet confidence as if Jesus has already won? Do you need to revisit the call to humility? Do you need to revisit the call to gentleness and respect and love? Here inside the body of Christ and outside in the world that we've been called to reach. There are lives and eternities at stake. There's a famous quote. Some of you will remember it uh, from back in your youth group days from DC Talk and, and one of their songs, but there's a quote by Brennan Manning. He's a 20th century priest and author. He said, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Are you living in Jesus' footsteps? Could you tell someone why you're doing that? Got to recommit to this, guys. 20th century is over. Ten Commandments will never be back in your kid's school. That's okay. Because it's to this you were called. This is why you were chosen. This is why you've been set apart. It's not supposed to be easy. And so rejoice when the opportunity comes and recommit to it right now because it's not going to get easier. It's not supposed to get easier. I would ask the question to some, have you committed to Jesus in the first place, right? Maybe, in, as we skipped the couple verses, but in verses 17 and 18 there in chapter 4, he says, it's better to suffer for the name of Christ as a test from him, as a blessing from him, than to suffer judgment at the end who doesn't know Christ. Do you know Jesus? Have you given him your heart? Recognize that you are a sinner fallen and separated from him by that sin, and the only solution to that separation is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what it means to believe in him and then to follow in his footsteps from there. love you to do me a favor and just bow your head and close your eyes. Just would love you to just kind of take a few seconds to just search your heart a little bit and ask God to do the same. Never know who wanders in on a Sunday morning, who's been invited, who's been compelled to come, who's visited. Maybe, maybe you've gone to church your entire life and it, you'd be amazed at the stories of people around the country, around the world who would say, I was in church my whole life, but nobody ever shared the gospel with me. It happens. And so maybe you're here and 
Maybe the Spirit's working on your heart a little bit. I wonder if, if you'd be willing, if you say, Justin, I need Jesus. I need to commit to Jesus for the first time. If that's you, would you slip your hand up? I would love to just pray for you. Pray that God would continue to soften your heart and draw you to himself. On the flip side of that, with our eyes still closed, just a moment between you and God, I wonder how many would say, man, Justin, I'm a believer, but I need to sober up. I need to be more alert. I need to recommit. I need to embrace the fact that this is what I've been called to. I need to rejoice in the fact that I've been found trustworthy with this calling. I need to recommit to it. If that's you, would you be willing to slip your hand up? Love to pray for you. Yeah. It's a high calling. It's not easy, but it's so important and such an honor. Let's pray. God, we love you, and we just thank you for uh, this church family that you continue to build and shape, um, that we can uh, learn and grow together in this room, in various living rooms around the community, at a camp in southwest Michigan, and, and all kinds of other places, and coffee shops and things. God, just continue to do your thing wherever we're at, and God, may we be walking light bulbs, walking around this community. And God, may we have the honor of answering questions about why we do what we do and why we say what we say and why we go to church on Sunday morning. God, give us those opportunities. Trust us with those opportunities and then step in and do your work. May this be a church. May we be a people that continue to reach the lost simply by living your way doing what you would do, saying what you would say, all for the glory of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a great afternoon.